Blog Talk Radio. joining us again today. Today we're going to have an extended show. We start with uh, one of my favorite people of all time, Dr. Joe Dispenza, who is the author of the, his latest work, You Are the Placebo, Making Your Mind Matter. And after speaking with Joe, we will launch into another interview with another gentleman here from the West Coast, Alan Sheets who's doing some very interesting work on sensory perception and uh, portals in the body that have been not that well known since perhaps ancient Egypt. So stay tuned for what will be a very interesting show, and please let people know about it. You can pass this word on to your friends and our website, www.abetterworld.tv, where you have access to the newsletter or can sign up for it if you don't get it yet. So we're going to continue one of our favorite themes here at A Better World with Joe talking about neuroscience and its actual application, not the academic study of, but its application to the world, to our lives and how our lives can really be very enriched as we are watching what you could call heretofore metaphysical notions, uh, spiritual truths being manifest as they are in quantum physics and in neuroscience. It's a very exciting time as science is uh, entering a new threshold in um, articulating and explaining things that we have had different kinds of almost mythical ex- explications for. Now science, which is, you could say, the language and religion of the land is coming through in some real breakthrough ways. And Joe Dispenza is one of those who's been able to unearth the science of certain principles by which we have lived or have known intuitively for so long and has become expert in applying these uh, in very practical ways to our lives and has been teaching around the world uh, for the past many years to bring this kind of knowledge forward and the knowledge keeps evolving. So hence his book, Evolve Your Brain, which we did an interview with Joe about when it first came out, and most recently, uh, well, we also spoke with him on TV 
about his book called Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself, How to Lose Your Mind and Create a New One by Hay House. And now, as I said most recently, uh, very recently released, is You Are the Placebo, Making Your Mind Matter. Now, just uh, another word about Joe. He became uh, first known and caught the public eye, you could say, as one of the scientists featured in the award-winning film What the Bleep Do We Know, which uh, we had the director, William Arntz, on many years ago as well. And it was really a genre-breaking and genre-changing film that brought the domain of quantum physics again to mainstream and uh we're very grateful for the producers directors and those participating like joe dispensa uh for just giving so much knowledge through it that has become you could say the talk of the town since that film joe has been writing profusely and has been teaching as well prolifically, uh, as I said, around the world, helping people as well as corporations come to understand these uh, nuances of psyche, of understanding the role, the powerful role that the mind plays, what human potential really can be far beyond, you could say, our wildest dreams. And we're going to be really looking at this in a very practical kind of way today so we can all get our arms around some of the fundamental ideas that Joe has been teaching through his writing and through his workshops. So, Joe, are you on with me? I am, Mitchell. I'm happy to be with you. I'm so glad. Good to hear your voice, my friend. It's been too long. I know, I know. It's always a pleasure to interact with you. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Listen, Joe, I uh, really appreciated your articulation of your own story, which in many ways really jettisoned this uh, flowering in your life in the direction of neuroscience, which as a chiropractor was not necessarily what you set out to do on your life's path. Could you start with the story, the personal story that brought you to uh, opening up this domain in your life, this dimension, and uh, what really got you going here? Sure. Be happy to. Uh, I think, you know, for all of us, in order for us to wake up, we need a wake-up call. And uh, in 1986, I was uh, in a triathlon in Palm Springs, California, and uh, I was in the biking portion of the race, and I was making a turn uh, to merge with uh, um, oncoming traffic and to pass a few bikers that were on the corner. And there was a police officer standing on the corner, and he was waving me on to pass these two bikers. And I kind of locked in on him, and uh, I just kind of followed his lead. But when I made the turn, he had his back to the oncoming traffic, and there was a four-wheel drive Bronco going about 55 miles an hour that catapulted me out of my bike and uh, hit me from behind. Then I landed pretty hard on my back, and I wound up breaking six vertebrae in my spine, and and, um, one of the vertebrae was more than 60% collapsed, and there was bone fragments on my spinal cord, and uh, the neural arch, the ring that uh, stabilizes the the spinal cord, was broken like a pretzel, so I had pressure Mm. on the cord, and... um, this was uh, 
the prognosis that the prognosis at that time was, you know, you're probably going to be paralyzed for the rest of your life, and you need a radical surgery called the Harrington Rod Surgery, where they cut off the back parts of your vertebrae, and then they install by screwing in these long stainless steel rods. And when they screw them in, I mean, it's actually an effective procedure. It pulls the the, the, uh, the bone fragments and the, and the broken vertebrae away from the spinal cord, and uh, and then you take a little bone fragment from the hip and you paste it up and over the top of the the um, core, uh, the rods and you hope for the best. Now, in my mm. case, the, the 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 rods would be from the base of my neck to the base of my spine, and so it, probably if it was any other patient that came into my office with something like that and I X-rayed them. I probably would have recommended the Harrington rod surgery, but this was me, you know, and I, I yes. wasn't so quick to uh, to make the decision. So after four, it's like the doctor before, who will not take chemotherapy, even if he had cancer, yeah. but he might recommend it to his patients. Right, exactly. So it was a it was a good moment for me in my life, a very defining moment because uh i had to weigh what i knew against what was possible and um this is what i call the dark night of the soul because yes. you have four very credible surgeons telling you look you'll probably never walk again you know you're going to have face paralysis and and you know it's not going to be a pretty sight and yes. um and you know for me personally i don't know if i was young enough or just innocent enough or uh just uh just uh, out of the box in in my approach i just decided against the surgery, and I thought, well, I I know I want to do two things. You know, the first thing I believed is that the power that made the body heals the body, and and that there, this power is a consciousness, and consciousness is awareness, and awareness is paying attention. So it must be conscious of my thoughts and who I am, and so I spend the majority of my life looking outside and not spending a lot of time looking in. So I thought maybe I could develop a relationship with this consciousness, make contact with it, give it a very specific plan, a very specific template, a very specific design. And then when I got that plan and design very clear, I would surrender it to a greater mind and allow it to begin to do the healing for me. Now, that sounds really easy. And um, the second thing I said was I wasn't going to let any thought slip by my awareness that I don't want to experience. So... That began the dark night of the soul because I learned very quickly, number one, how focused and uh, how poor of an attention span I had. And secondly, when we face crisis or trauma, when we face disease or diagnosis or some type of catastrophe in our life, we typically focus on what we don't want to have happen instead of what we do want to have happen. And so I would start, you know, uh, an inward process and I would start reconstructing my spine and the next thing you know, I'd be thinking about being in a wheelchair. Then I'd stop again and start from the very beginning, and then the next thing you know, I'd think about whether I should sell my house or my practice. And mm. so I couldn't keep my mind on what I wanted. And so every time that I lost my attention, I figured that I wasn't being present with this consciousness, and it did, demanded my presence, just like you know when someone's present with you or you know when uh, someone's when you're present with someone else. So... Yes. I decided then that I was going to uh, go from the very start, from the very end, and reconstruct my spine. And it, it took me, no kidding, Mitchell, two or three hours just to get through it. And I was frustrated and angry. Mm. I was impatient. And then, of course, I got more frustrated and more angry, and it got worse. And and I went through six weeks of hell, pretty much. And 
and uh, I was f- fighting against myself. And, and then at, right around the sixth week, I just kept persevering, persevering. All of a sudden, I went through the whole entire inward process and in reconstructing my spine. And it pretty much took less than two hours, and when I finished it, it felt like I had just hit a tennis ball right in the sweet spot, like I had, I had hit a golf ball just right, or I just cooked a really yeah. great meal. Something clicked, and really mm-hmm. I clicked. And, and I started to realize that I was firing and wiring circuits in my brain, and it started to get easier the more I did it. And so what took yeah. me hours to do all of a sudden took me much less time, and then I started, I didn't know what I was doing at the time, but I started selecting potentials in the quantum field. I started thinking about what it would be like to see a sunset again, and I would emotionally embrace being there or eating lunch Mm. with my friends or taking a shower again and what it would feel like. Mm -hmm. And as I was beginning to emotionally embrace those future realities, my body as the unconscious mind began to believe it was in that future event in the present moment, and I was literally Mm. signaling new genes and new ways. And all of a sudden, I started getting well very quickly. And the moment I started to notice my pain go away and the sensation of my legs coming back, I started to pay attention to what I was doing, and I did it with more passion and more vigor and more enthusiasm. Mm. And in a very short amount of time, uh, I was back on my feet in 10 weeks and and then uh, back into my life uh, a few weeks after that. My God, Joe, you know, if you think about the level of damage that you had and nine or ten weeks thereafter without any other, let's say, physical intervention, such as surgery or such as drugs, but really the use of your mind, that, if I could say, standing outside of it, doesn't seem like a very long time at all to have overcome those issues with that kind of medical prognosis by those four qualified surgeons. Well, I think, you know, it's kind of interesting. Something, when you're, when I had that event occur, my life went from 100 miles an hour to zero. And basically I was laying face down. I wasn't going anywhere. I wasn't seeing anybody. I wasn't doing the same things. My identity all of a sudden was changing. And so then I, because I wasn't reaffirming my personality and your personality creates your personal reality, I had to really mm-hmm. take a look at myself and really have to decide what thoughts I did want to believe in and what thoughts I didn't want to believe in. and and um, But not just do that, but really begin to really force myself to, um, to, to, to go beyond, you know, convention. And, and I just made myself yeah. a deal that if I was ever able to walk again, you know, I'd spend the rest of my life studying, you know, the mind-body connection and how mind influences yeah. reality. So, you know... You reconstructed yourself. You reconstructed your story. You reconstructed your relationship with yourself. You went inward. You made it pretty obvious for what may have been one of the first times in your life in some kind of sustained way. And as I listen to your story, I'm reminded of time that I spent on a meditation cushion in a Buddhist context way up in northern Vermont where we were going to sit for about 12 hours a day for a month. And theoretically, I thought, oh, that sounds great. Well, 
it sounds great until your legs start to feel like they want to fall off and you 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 fear getting into that cross-legged position again and your mind is racing in every other direction than sitting down in a sense in itself and on and on and on you know the story uh and then there was a certain moment at which it all quieted down the physical aching the body discomfort the sense of distortion the mental chatter all of a sudden like a samurai sword came down and said that's it quiet up quiet down and then everything became so much easier and it sounds like there is some parallel between that moment at which you sort of turned a corner where the physical pain and the distraction and the diversion and the digressions in your mind just shifted and you became way more focused and you began to actually feel the benefits of the changes that began to take place. Like you said, your projections of your future reality of going out with friends, of seeing the sunset, on and on, started to actually materialize in your body. And, of course, that's an incredible moment. I mean, when you go back now in your mind to remember, I'm sure you've told this story many times, um, what does it feel like to remember this whole because this set up the stage if you will for what has happened over the past you know couple of decades well you know it's interesting because i i really don't tell the story too often and and i don't really talk about it in in audiences but i think the most important thing that i want uh, uh anybody to know is that um when yeah. i well, that i don't look at it with an emotional charge and i think a memory mm-hmm. without an emotional charge is called wisdom and i think that when we mm. can retire emotions from experiences and really put them away and we can look at them and we can see the value of the event, then I think we've yeah. gained the wisdom from it. So for me, it was like another lifetime. It was something that happened. Um, I don't have yeah. any pain in my body because of it. I mean, I'm just, I'm on to so many other things. And I think it was just, uh, you know, a, a very, very pivotal point in my life to wake up and to begin to realize that, that um, there were other choices for me to make. Yes, exactly. Well, thank you for taking the time to share it with us because in many ways I consider it to be illustrative as well as kind of a a metaphor and a platform for all the rich material that you've been sharing with your students and others uh, ever since. Uh, You were, uh, you could say you're a living example of what it is you're teaching, and it doesn't get better than that, you know. We have too many people not walking the talk out there, and uh, you are certainly one who really brought it all together under one roof. So tell us about the exciting things that you're doing. Tell us about some of the research um, and the experiences that have been showing up in your workshops. Just kind of take over and uh, lay things out. Let me just let everybody know you are listening to A Better World with Mitchell J. Rabin. We are spending the hour with Dr. Joe Dispenza, the author of several books. Most recently, You Are the Placebo, Making Your Mind Matter, a Hay House book. And uh, we're looking at delving into the domain of neuroscience and its practical application to our lives. So, Joe, what do you, what do you mean 
we are the placebo. Why don't you pick up on that provocative and wonderful statement? Well, if you think about it, you know, if you give someone a sugar pill or a saline injection or a, you perform a sham or fake surgery or procedure and you tell them it's the actual real thing, that a certain percentage of those people will accept, believe, and surrender to the thought that that external substance or that external event is going to heal them in some way, even though they've been yeah. given something that's inert. So if you examine that, it means that they're really healing themselves by thought alone. And mm-hmm. so the question is, if you understand the mechanisms of how the placebo works in the brain and body, and you understand the processes of what takes place, do you really need that external substance or that event to make the changes? Or can you teach people how to do it without the placebo uh, uh, being administered? And so sure. when we were doing our workshops in the last couple of years... I mean, this years, is what we used to call auto-suggestion. This is out of the <laughs> body of work of psychosomatic medicine, of the profound work of Milton Erickson, a psychiatrist, of Dr. Ernest Rossi. It kind of very much follows in that tradition. Exactly. But more people have to know this because, I mean, That's they right. have to understand that the placebo response can work between 10% and 100% of the time, or three out of four people, for example, that are given an uh, antidepressant, uh, are given a, a, a placebo and told they're taking an antidepressant, three out of those four people will have the same biological changes as if they took the antidepressant. Now, the key to that is that the moment the person accepts it's possible and they believe in that substance and they surrender to the outcome without analyzing they're programming their autonomic nervous system, and their body is making their own pharmacy of chemicals to match the exact same external event or substance. And that's how powerful we are. So then mm. when the placebo, when you understand how the placebo works, Mitch, what people really are doing is that they're selecting a different potential in the quantum field. They're selecting the idea of being better. And then what they're doing is they're putting uh, their faith and belief in it and then they are emotionally embracing the outcome for a moment. Now, when you marry a clear intention with an elevated emotion, those two ingredients tend to program the autonomic nervous system into a new state of being. So then teaching people how to do it and teaching people how to do it effectively and teaching people how to reproduce the same state of being every day it allows us to begin to measure some of the changes. And so... We started noticing in our, our workshops around the world, after What the Bleep, I think the most common question people asked me uh, was, how do you do it, and why is it so hard to change? So we started teaching you know, workshops around the world and showing people how to create the life they want and how to use the principles of quantum physics and mind and neuroscience and neuroendocrinology and emotions and emotional addictions and, and, and epigenetics to have people understand that they have within their reach all the resources and all the, the, uh, the, um, the anatomy to begin to make measurable changes in their body and in their life. And, and mm-hmm. I think this is a time in history where we, you started off the show that science is the contemporary language of mysticism. And knowledge yes. is power, but knowledge about yourself is self-empowerment. So we constructed models of understanding that were similar to the belief and much more um, uh, continuous 
And then what we did next mm-hmm. was we give we gave people the instruction on how to how to do it, how to get beyond their body, get beyond their environment, and transcend time, and begin to uh, make enough significant internal changes that it should produce some effects. And and so that's why I wrote Breaking the Habit because it's the how to uh, how to do it. And so then yes, when I kept teaching the workshops, people kept asking me to come back and teach more levels. Well. Somewhere after a couple of years of that, we started getting these emails where people were saying, you're not going to believe this, but, you know, I had acid reflux for the last 25 years. I never realized that I was still carrying around hate from my father. I surrendered that emotion and reconditioned my body to a new mind, and all of a sudden I, I forgot to take my, my reflux medication for the last two weeks, or my pain is gone, or my celiac disease is gone, or, you know. The, you know yes, yes. getting Amazing so the mind-body so, connection, the emotional stress. This is I, I don't know if you're familiar with the domain of uh, the field of total biology, but it's basically a latter-day expression of a Freudian-style psychosomatic medicine, but in a sense, in many ways enhanced. But it has to do with the correlation. I I call it Louise Hay on steroids, Joe. It's sort of like understanding the emotional stress correlate behind a physical ailment, whatever it may be, exactly. from headaches to cancer. Yeah. Well, it's the In fact, they say, they the say it. It doesn't even matter that the issue, uh, the conflict, whether it's uh, causing a headache or causing lung cancer, it doesn't really matter. Once you get to the conflict and get that resolved, the physical expression of it gets also resolved. So it doesn't matter yeah. what you call it, you know. Yeah, please go yes, on. Yes, and I agree with that. And I think it's the emotion, really, that is the strongest element that begins to signal the wrong genes in the wrong ways. And so, mm, so, so interesting. Started, yes, yes. We started seeing people in our events, like uh, after a period of time, right during our workshops, with MS stand up and walk across the room, more than one, by the way, and people mm. with all different types of food allergies and Crohn's disease and. Uh, chronic pain and just people starting to all of a sudden in one weekend say, you know, my condition is gone. And so I knew in that moment that we were signaling new genes in new ways. We were upregulating the genes for health and immune repair, and we were downregulating the genes for their disease, and they were getting better. And that's when it caught my attention that we should start measuring this. And, And so we brought in a team of researchers and scientists and we started teaching these advanced workshops called Information to Transformation. And I believe mm-hmm. that if you give people information, and every time you learn something new, you make new connections in your brain. That's what learning is. And they can yes. repeat that information. In other words, they can repeat it to somebody else. They're wiring that information in their brain, and they're developing neurological networks. If you give them some instruction on how to apply that, and they can get their behavior to match their intentions or their actions equal to their thoughts, they should have, an, excuse me, a new experience, and that new experience should produce some type of transformation. It should change their form in some way. Some mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. And if we could measure that transformation, then we would have more information to teach transformation again the next time. And if we could yes. measure that transformation, we would get more information, and we can close the gap between knowledge and experience. And, and so we started teaching these advanced workshops, and we measured people's brains before and after uh, a four-day event. We measured their brains in certain uh, random selected we are people. Teaching, you're teaching these folks how to, they're actually habituating the new desired pattern. 
Exactly. We're making their brain and body live in the future instead of live in the past. That's the easiest way yeah. to say it. That's a good way. And yeah. so they're retreating from their life for five, four days and one night or five days, and they're getting away from the constant stimulation that reminds them of who they are long enough to change their brain and body so they walk back into their life. They're no longer affected by their environment in the yeah. same way. So, In other words, who they were. Who they were. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So we measure mm-hmm. the energy in the room. We measure the energy field around people's bodies. We measure the energy centers of their bodies. We measured heart rate variability. We've measured epigenetic changes in the urine and the saliva. And, um, wow, we made scientific history in the last couple of years. And uh, we were recording, for example, brainwave measurements never seen in a clinical setting where people had so much energy in their brain, so much amplitude of energy that their inner experience that they were having was way more real than any past experience. And they were literally repatterning their brain and body in that moment. And so... Uh, awesome. That's where my passion lies right now. My passion lies in demystifying the mystical by using yeah. science as the as the medium. And so I now know that everybody is the placebo. That uh, you yeah. don't need an external substance to change your state of being. You can do it through meditation every day. Incredible! I love what you're bringing forward. Uh, did you find that in the brainwave changes that you saw, Joe, were they? What what was the state? Was it primarily alpha or theta or some of the work that Dr. Richard Davidson has been bringing forth in measuring the Tibetan monks, hand-selected, by the way, by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, uh, they were showing what they called gamma waves. What is it that you found in that regard? Well, <laughs> we uh, we know now that, well, here's what I know. I mean, I know that there's always a, a balance between all of them. It's not any one exclusive. But, like, I was wondering what was predominating. Okay, well, the predominant patterns that we see is we see very strong coherent. Now, coherence yes. is when your brain is working in synchrony. It's working in rhythm. It's working in unity. We saw sure. tremendous amounts of coherence in alpha and tremendous amount of coherence in theta. And when we start seeing extended periods, sustainable changes in, in alpha and theta, in a very uh, good portion of our participants, we would see a very high level of gamma take over. And sometimes that level of gamma, the amplitude of that gamma, was pretty much off the chart. I mean, ten times the amount we were seeing and measuring oh, significant energy patterns taking place in the brain. And, and that person was in bliss. That person was in ecstasy. That person was moved beyond um, beyond any. It was a transcendent moment. So that hasn't happened once. Mm. That hasn't happened twice. That's happened over and over again in our students. That is so interesting. And do you is gamma? Would you describe gamma as beyond beta, or where, where does it fit into the the hierarchy, so to speak, of of brainwave um, of Hertz levels? Okay, well, let's let's explain it. Okay, I'll explain it really simply. Yeah, please do. That would when, be great. Uh, when you're living a normal life uh, and you're going to bed at night and waking up in the morning, your brain chemistry changes. So when your eye begins to pick up light in the morning, all of a sudden the pineal gland begins to make a chemical called serotonin. Serotonin gets you up and gets you moving, and serotonin yeah. begins to cause you to put all of your attention on your outer environment. Now, when you put all of your attention on your outer environment, 
your thinking neocortex, the seat of your conscious awareness, is putting its attention on the things and people in the external environment and the places. It's concerned about time. It's concerned about the body in reference to space. So for the most part, when we're living in beta wave patterns, the neocortex is trying to create meaning between the outer world and the inner world, and the senses mm. are determining that. And it's trying to integrate mm -hmm. that information. And because of that, you see a fast brainwave pattern. Now, the moment... Um, daylight turns to nighttime, the pineal gland now all of a sudden isn't picking up as much light from the optic nerve, and serotonin turns into melatonin, and melatonin is like the nighttime neurotransmitter. And yes, when that yes. happens, your brain waves begin to slow down into alpha. So if you wake up in the morning, you pretty much go from deep sleep, which is delta, to theta, which is twilight, to alpha, which is kind of dreamy light levels of uh, imagination, up into beta, and now you're up and awake. When you go to bed at night, you go from beta to alpha to theta to delta. So we could say Correct. then that there's two times in the day that the door to your subconscious mind opens up, when you wake up in the morning and when you go to bed at night. Now, mm -hmm. if you're beginning to close your eyes and do a meditation, and you begin to take your attention off the external world because your brain is picking up less sensory data because your eyes are closed and there's music in the background, all of a sudden your brainwave patterns will slow down and the inner world will start to become more real than the outer world. And now you're moving into what we call alpha, the imaginary realm. Now, mm -hmm. a lot of people can't switch from beta to alpha because of stress and because of the addictive hormones of stress. When you're under stress, in antiquity, to survive, you have to keep your attention on the outer world because there's a predator around the corner. There's some threat. Mm -hmm. There's an angry tribe, you know. So most people who are living in fear or anger or aggression or hostility or judgment, and they're addicted to those emotions, they can't slow their brainwave patterns down because they're putting all of their attention on their environment and problems and their body and where they look, and they're, they're, they're consumed by their external environment. And when they stay in these high beta states, uh, the brain gets exhausted, and that's when you start to experience anxiety or, or depression or OCD. Sure. So... If you're able to train the brain, and there are specific ways that we use to do it, to move into alpha patterns, and not only alpha patterns, but very organized and coherent alpha patterns, if we do that properly, the front of the brain starts to talk to the back of the brain. The left half of the brain starts to talk to the right side of the brain, and we call that a whole brain state. Now, our students <laughs> are able to, to execute that state pretty, pretty consistently now, and they're not Buddhist monks, and they're not spiritual leaders. They're common people that live common lives doing the uncommon. And it's a skill. Yes. And the more you practice yes. it, the better you get at it. And so the average in the United States for most people to move into a meditative state takes about a minute and a half to two minutes. Our average in all of the advanced workshops we've done, the average is about under a minute. Some people do it in four seconds, five seconds, nine seconds, yeah. not because they can, it's competition, but because they know no. that how to do it, like a skill. So... When you They've drop down a little brain. They've theta. trained their brain, yeah. Exactly. If you drop into theta now, this is the place where your body is asleep and your mind is awake. Now, when your body is asleep and your mind is awake, the body is no longer the mind. And a habit is when your body is the mind. So 95% of who we are by the time we're 35 is a set of habits and behaviors and emotional reactions and addictions. So the moment the body goes into quiescence and it's no longer the mind, we see a lot of instantaneous healing take place. Now, if you fall too deep into theta, you've, uh, into delta, you've fallen asleep. 
But there's this yes. little window that takes place with a lot of our students when they're sustaining a certain level of alpha and theta, and all of a sudden energy is starting to rise in their body. There'll come a moment where all of a sudden the sympathetic nervous system, which is the fight-or-flight nervous system, starts to work in complete balance with the parasympathetic nervous system. And all the energy that's being used for ejaculation or orgasm, all the energy that's being used to digest food, all the energy that's being used to run from a, a tiger or, or to tell your boss off or to react to some condition in your life, yes. all of those, all those chemicals and all that energy now all of a sudden travels instead of out, it travels up the spine and up the body. And when it does that, yes. it reaches a little mechanism in the brainstem called the thalamic gate. And that little switch opens up and that energy travels right into the neocortex and you start to see gamma patterns taking place. And we could say that in that moment, that person is having the perfect marriage between their sympathetic nervous system and their parasympathetic nervous system, and their brain is awake, and they're super conscious, and whatever they're putting their attention on is absolutely real, and there's a good possibility they'll never forget that experience for the rest of your, their life. Because gamma mm. kind of looks a lot like beta, but it's a little bit more compressed, yes. and sometimes you see an amplitude that's very high. And, and we've captured, Mitchell, sometimes 10, 15 times the amount of energy in a person's brain in gamma. And we've captured it in some students in their entire brain. Like normally you see it in one area or two areas. But we've captured yes. it in certain students in their entire brain. And when we see that, we know that that person is in an absolute state of ecstasy. And we turn around and we look at them while we're looking at their brain patterns and we say, and they have tears in their eyes, and they are completely in bliss. And that's when all of a sudden the, the um, uh, posterior pituitary begins to secrete enormous amounts of oxytocin, and oxytocin then begins to compete mm. in the receptor sites of the amygdala, and it shuts off fear, and it shuts off uh, judgment, and it shuts off aggression, and it shuts off sadness. Fight and, and flight. It changes the whole – what you're, you're modifying – the and, and please correct me if I don't have this right, but it sounds like you're you're modifying the brainstem, the reptilian brain, so it's no longer uh, predominant, but the uh, the frontal cortex is. Yeah, and that, and and what, what's happening to the person is that energy is traveling back to their brain, and there's a reorganization going on in their brain, and when that yeah. occurs their past literally no longer exists anymore for them. In other words, biologically, neurologically, there's a rewriting going on that's taking place genetically yes. and neurologically, and that person is is changed for the most part uh, for uh, quite a while. And it's so interesting. You're also reminding me, of course, Joe, of the wisdom of the past, um, which comes through the notions of Taoist sex practices, kundalini sex practices, uh, through which energy is deliberately um, coaxed up the spine uh, through to the top of the head in the Taoist context, then down again in a loop, in an embryonic kind of loop uh, called the microcosmic orbit and other names. But the idea is to, you're describing scientifically what I'm familiar with Anciently, if you will, mystically, it is. Is could you talk about that that correspondence? Well, it is exactly the same. The movement of the Kundalini, you know, and we yeah. we um, 
we I don't like to ever use traditional words because people all of a sudden get intimidated, but we know that yes. when we pull the mind out of the body or we, when we ascend our energy or when we use the body as an instrument of consciousness and we begin to yes. uh, uh, change our, our energy, that if it's done properly, the person will literally, that gamma pattern is an orgasm in their brain. There is a yeah. release of energy that's, that's happening up into their brain, and that mystical moment is a moment for the most part where the analytical mind and the thinking brain is literally sedated. It's anesthetized. You couldn't think if you wanted to, and you wouldn't want to analyze anything because the moment you'd analyze, you start losing that feeling of bliss. And that's when yes. unconditional love begins to be born. That's unconditional joy. In other words, so many people yeah. in this world begin to confuse pleasure and happiness. They're not the same thing. That Mm-hmm. They're not, that person doesn't need anything outside of them any longer to feel that way. It's coming from within them, and that's the moment where they begin to say, I've got to hold this state, and I won't trade it for anyone or anything, and I see the greatest good in everybody. That's when we no longer are selfish. We become selfless, and we've, we've interviewed yeah. a lot of the people who have had this experience, and they just say, I just love everybody. I feel connected to something greater. I never want to lose this feeling. I never want to forget. I feel like I'm not forgotten. I feel like I'm important. I feel like sure. I'm making a difference. And these are this is what I call the natural state of being. Yes, yes, I know that state very well, Joe. I've had the opportunity, thank God and the universe, for uh, bringing that on. I've had it from you know teenagehood and forward in New York City as well as in uh, the Amazon and in India. I know it's just and it's happened in my own living room. I it it's not context specific. It's an inner reality that you're referring to that is chemically and hormonically hormonally related and you described it just exquisitely what's going on of course i came to those through spiritual traditions but that doesn't matter one bit that was just what sort of brought me to the place of having this kind of powerful neurophysiological experience and i think many people of our uh, many people across the planet have actually had this but you have refined the techniques to hasten the experience and bring, as you said, common people to an uncommon experience, but you're changing the conversation and changing the consensus that more people through your teaching and workshops and books and everything else and radio shows such as this is upping the ante, if you will, upping the gamma, can I put it that way, so that more people can start to have this kind of conversation about what's possible you know it reminds me of the uh wonderful quote of uh saint augustine that i like so much of miracles are not contrary to nature but only contrary to what we know about nature and through this work that you're doing you are helping to change that conversation about what's possible and what was once thought of as a miracle you know, vaccinations were once thought of as a miracle, and then they became habituated. That's a whole other conversation, and I'm not glad about that one. That's uh, something else. But you know what I mean, that what was once considered uh, not hardly possible, 
then becomes part of the warp and woof of society. And I feel that you're helping to push that conversation about what all human beings can potentially truly realize in their own bodies and beings. Is well, that you know, that's why I wrote about- You Are the Placebo. I wrote the book yeah. because um, I think that, you know, when you see someone dance the salsa well and and you like the salsa, you'll dance the salsa better. If you see someone hit a tennis ball yeah. really well, you'll hit a tennis ball better. If you see someone yeah. lead with courage and compassion in their life and you study them, you'll lead with courage and compassion in your life. And if you see someone heal themselves of cancer, and we've seen this, and stand up on the stage and tell their story from start to finish and the struggles and what it took for them to do it, and it took a year, but they kept at it. And you begin to understand that they just crossed the four-minute mile mark. You're more prone to accept, believe, and surrender to the idea that you can do it yourself as well because we're creating a new consciousness. A new consciousness is emerging, and and the emergence of that consciousness is saying to believe in yourself and to believe in possibility and that the deconditioning process from advertising and, and, and corporations and consumerism, all of that, you know, people think they have free will. Like, you know, I'll take Bayer yeah. or I'll take Tylenol. That's not free will. That's, <laughs> yes, that's, right. that's making choices based on the known. Really, when a person sure. steps outside of convention and they begin to do what's unconventional, they'll always be considered foolhardy and insane when they do that at yeah. first, when they actually accomplish it, then they're a mystic, you know, then they're a genius, then they're yeah. a saint, because they, they right. challenge the current beliefs of the time. So when I wrote You Are the Placebo, and I actually wrote it in six weeks because I was passionate about the ideas, I mm-hmm. include brain scans, pictures of people, and brain scans to show that it wasn't just in their mind. <laughs> it was in their brain. It actually took yeah. place in their brain. And when people begin to see that, and they begin to scratch their head and say, hmm, I'm thinking the same thoughts, I'm making the same choices, I'm demonstrating the same behaviors, I'm creating the same experiences, and I'm living by the same emotions. Well, of course I'm going to need chemicals to try to change my state of being. But what if I change my state of being and I begin to think differently and I begin to make new choices and I begin to demonstrate new behaviors and I begin to create new experiences and I begin to feel differently? Shouldn't there be some biological effects as a result of it? So... Well, I, I think we've been conditioned into a very backwards point of view. You know, most people yeah. wait for their disease uh, to go away to feel whole and rejoice. So many people wait for their wealth to show up to feel abundant. Many people yeah. wait for the relationship to occur to feel love or, or you know, to succeed to feel yep. empowered. Or, uh, I you see know, where you're going with this one, feet. right? Yeah, uh-huh. to feel awe. That's the model of cause and effect, but... What we're teaching students how to do is the cause and effect. In other words, if you can marry a clear intention with an elevated emotion and you're beginning to feel whole before the actual experience, your body as the unconscious mind is beginning to live in that state of wholeness and you're literally changing your biology. And I've studied many, many people, Mitchell, that have healed themselves of even genetic conditions that medical science said they would never heal. And every single one of those people reached a point in crossing that river of change where they became so whole and so satisfied and so complete and so happy with themselves that they could care less if they had the disease any longer. And that's the moment the disease went away. Mm. 
That is so fascinating. And the underpinning of everything that you're saying, Joe, essentially is that for every thought, there is its own unique, distinct biochemical and biohormonal profile. There is its own synaptic and dendritic profile, if you will, its own neural circuitry. And so when you elevate an emotion, let's say passion, like the passion that drove you to complete this book in only six weeks, and it's, it's quite an opus, uh, it's the elevation of the emotion of direction, let's say, of love, of joy, of passion, that allows, it's sort of like the incentive for the entire brain profile to change. Therefore, a new habit, a new healthy novel habit, if you will. In this case, for you, it was getting this book completed in such a short amount of time. Well, I mean, uh, I love the idea of just using gratitude as an example. You know, most people wait to give thanks when something happens. You know, they wait for something outside of them to change yeah. how they're feeling inside of them. And when they, when they feel better or they feel worse, they pay attention to whoever caused that and they make a decision. And that, that event, by measuring your, your internal change with something outside of you, is called a memory. It's an event. But yes. the quantum model is really to give thanks ahead of the actual experience. And if you can marry that yeah. clear intention and give thanks, your body as the unconscious mind is believing that the event has already occurred or the event is happening to you in that moment. And when that yeah. happens, you're giving your body a taste of the future in the present moment, and that's when you begin to see significant changes. And that then is something that you can teach people to do. It's not easy because they've been conditioned to be to do it the other way, but if we keep practicing, yes. all of a sudden now their body starts to get that energy starts moving out of their lower hormonal centers and it starts to open their heart and they start to fall in love with themselves and fall in love with life and they start to forgive and they start to let go and all of a sudden they're not judging anyone or anything and that kind of that kind of elevated emotion then causes yes. their energy field around their body, and we've measured this, to be significantly yes. enhanced. And when their energy field is enhanced, that means they're becoming more energy and less matter. They're becoming more wave and less particle. And when that happens, yes. they feel connected to something greater. And when they feel connected to something greater, they trust in the unknown. They trust in their future. They don't know how it's going to happen or when it's going to happen, but they would never try to control the outcome never try to force the outcome. They never try to get in the way and push their way to make it happen because they feel separate from possibility or more like matter and less like energy. They surrender, and that's when the magic begins to happen. That's awesome. That's awesome. One of the things, to just go back a bit of what you're saying when you said cause and effect, but be the cause of the effect, you are in that beautiful reframing, uh, rephrasing is a reframing that in, is an invitation from our linear mode of thinking to a nonlinear, a circular, or it sounds like you read the newsletter this week, um, the Better World newsletter, where I, I invite people to think not linearly, but spirally. So it's cyclical, but with an upward intention. <laughs> so, you know, it, it puts us, no pun intended, into a different orbit when we step out of that linear, like as you say, give thanks beforehand for what is this moment. 
and you are also envisioning the future you want like you did in your own personal story, you you kept fusing your mind with the uh, image that you had of what you wanted. Now, there's a distinction to be made between holding the image of what it is you want and forcing it the way you were just kind of describing, correct? Yeah, it's kind of an interesting phenomenon. I mean, if you overintend, yeah. that's called trying, right? And we get in our own yeah. way. And if we over-surrender, right. then we get lethargic and lazy and uninspired. So it's a razor's yeah. edge. It's a perfect balance between the two. But I like to think yeah. of it like this. If you can really, if you really want something, you know, that image should yeah. be very clear in your mind. But instead of marrying it with the emotion of want, marrying with the emotion that it's already done. In other words, of you don't have. pray to have yes. your prayers answered. You know, if you pray yes. to have your prayers answered, then you're separate from it. You get up as if your prayers are already answered. When that That's occurs, right. then, now all of a sudden it becomes visceral now. It's no longer an intellectual process. This is when yeah. it gets exciting because now the, 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 when, you, when you marry it with that emotion, emotion is the end product of an experience. So now if mm-hmm. you're combining that emotion with it, you're signaling the gene ahead of the event, and your body literally is changing to look like the experience has already happened. And the more you do that, the more you create that state of knowingness. You don't know how it's going to happen right. or when it's going to happen. You just know it's going to happen. And all of a sudden, you're kind of relaxed in the present moment, and you're not always trying to anticipate the future because you've worked uh, uh, in conditioning your body into the present moment. And that's... That's quite a, I, I can only describe it that way, but I've seen it so many times where people finally relax into the present moment and they can hold the image, but they feel whole and complete and yet at the same time connected to something in their future. And that's when, you know, we start to see mystical moments occur for people and, and that's when they're out of their own way. And we, we studied over 500 brain scans and I can tell you that you and I are at our best when we get out of our way. And I can tell you also that the brain will never change the brain, that the, the ego will never change the ego, that the, the, the uh, personality will never change the personality, the program will never change mm-hmm. the program. Matter will never change matter. It's only when you become pure consciousness, a thought in possibility. And if you're going to heal yeah. by thought alone, then you have to become thought alone. And when you get to that elegant place, uh, that's, when the, that's when we start to see the biggest effects on people's lives. That's so interesting. So aligning with consciousness, which is outside the brain, it's outside the personality, it's outside the ego, it's not identified, it's free-flowing, it pre-exists the brain, it post-exists the brain, and yet it utilizes the brain and slash the whole nervous system and body as its vehicle for expression. Right. Consciousness, when it's moving through the brain, when it's proce- the brain is processing it, is creating different levels of mind because it's causing the brain to fire in all kinds of sequences and patterns and combinations. You could have a mind to complain. You can have a mind to brush your teeth. You could have a mind to yes. talk a language. Those are different sequences of neurons. So yes. uh, when people finally get out of their own way, it's kind of like the body says and the brain says, thank God he's finally out of the way. I can heal now. Thank God he's out of the way. I can get, create coherence. I can create order now. I can create balance because he's been tormenting me for the last 20 years, and all of a sudden he's just out of the way, and I can get back into balance again. 
<laughs> get back get back to living. Thank you very much. <laughs> no, it's it's both. Uh, you want to cry and you want to laugh at the same time. What is uh, no very well and very clear. What is the relationship, Joe, between uh, brain coherence, which you know, hemispheric balance, which is something that music can accomplish, meditation accomplishes, and we've been measuring this for you know some decades now, and this idea that the Institute of Heart Math has floated forward, which I very much like, which is this idea of heart coherence. What have you seen the relationship between them be? Well, quite a bit, because we have been using the heart rate variability monitors in our students' yes, so you mentioned, workshops right. along with our, our, our measurements. And we know now that when a person has heart coherence, uh, they have brain coherence. And when they have brain coherence, they have a greater degree of heart coherence. So I like to okay. think that those mm-hmm. two elements, mind and body, are the perfect combination. So I say thoughts are yeah. electric and feelings are magnetic. The magnetic field that's created from heart coherence can be up to six to nine meters wide. The coherence that's mm. created from brain then also starts creating a rhythmic pattern between the heart and the brain. And, well, we've just seen some pretty amazing sustained changes. And, I mean, Roland McCready, uh, the senior research analyst for heart math, is a friend of mine. And uh, yes. he actually lectured at our last uh, advanced workshop. And, and uh, mm-hmm. he's pretty pleasantly surprised by our students' ability to create both in, 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 uh, in balance. And we always say the brain thinks, but the heart knows. Yes, exactly. That's beautiful to hear about the coherence between the two systems and their their interconnectedness by all means. Now, you also referenced uh, people getting up on stage at the workshops uh, declaring that by utilizing some of the techniques that you've described in a couple of your books that they overcame this thing in our society that uh, scares the daylights out of almost everybody called cancer. And could you just, you know, pick out of the ethers a story or two that uh, our audience could relate to um, about about that? How much time do I have? I have five minutes? Two minutes? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, five. Well, I was just five, in, seven. I was just in Holland, and there was a lady who uh, stood up and took the microphone. And um, a couple years ago, her husband uh, left the house and um, jumped off the tallest building in Amsterdam and committed suicide, and left her with her children. And um, the shock from the experience produced quite a bit of stress hormones, and and she was angry, and she was mad, and she was in pain, and she Breast was surprised, and and. And, and in a very short amount of time, uh, you know, she, she developed a, a neuritis where she, her whole entire body was completely paralyzed. She couldn't get out of bed. Now, because she couldn't get out of bed, she lost her job. Uh, she couldn't take care of her children. She couldn't make money. Now she was more stressed, and the stress hormones continuously pushed the genetic buttons that began to signal the ge- wrong genes in the wrong way. In a very short amount of time after that, she developed ulcerations in her mouth, in her throat, in her vagina, in her anus, and in her bladder. And now she couldn't eat, and she was in quite a bit of pain because all of her mucosa was uh, inflamed. Mm. From that point, she developed um, uh, esophageal cancer, and um, they weren't giving her much hope. She started coming to our events, and she started doing the work, 
and she said, I'm not getting up from my meditation every day until I'm in love with life. Now, she had no reason to be in love with life, but that wasn't going to stop her. So over the course of about a year and a half, all of the pain in her body went away, all of her paralysis went away, all of the ulcers disappeared, her esophageal cancer went into, there's no evidence of it in her body any longer. And um, she has a new husband and a new relationship, and she loves her life. Oh, my God. That is awesome. Awesome. And it wasn't because she was taking some kind of medication. It wasn't because she changed her diet. It wasn't because even her sleep patterns changed, although no doubt over time they got better. Uh it was because she changed her thinking, she changed her brain, originating in the brain and body. Brain and body, the brain leading the way. She made a declaration that she would love life every day, and she lived by that spoken declaration. But she also understood enough science about how to repattern her neural circuitry. She understood that every time she moved into an elevated state that she was literally signaling new genes in new ways, turning on the right genes, turning off the wrong genes. And she knew that those stress hormones were keeping her in the past and that she had to every day get beyond her past, get beyond her body, get beyond her identity, get beyond her face, her her gender, get beyond her being a mother, get beyond her pain. She had to get beyond all those things and become pure consciousness, and that was really the, the, a testament to who she is. And now she loves her life, and she said to me, I'm so in love with my life. I said, of course you are. You created from the mm. place of being in love with your life. You get to love your life. Yes. yes, exactly. Oh, it's awesome. It's awesome. And uh, qu- another question, Joe. A lot of times people have what we could refer to as peak experience. Many of the experiences you describe people having in the workshops are when you spoke about the um, that bliss state, and then you even f- essentially photographed, scanned the brain, and you saw the entirety of the brain lit up, so to speak. Um, what then, uh, one of the issues with, so-called peak experiences is that then there comes another point where it's no longer peak and we're sort of back down to our other levels. What do you find has been sustained both in the domain of bliss as well as when it comes to the placebo effect? Because one of the things that has shown up in hypnosis is that um, when auto-suggestion is used or hypnotic uh, hypnosis as a therapy is utilized, there sometimes is a dropping off of the sustainable effect. Uh, you know, it just drops off at a certain point. What have you found to be the sustained value and effect of the work you've been doing with people? Well, I think one of the important things is to change it up. I think we're creatures of habit, and I think people get stuck yeah. in trying to reproduce the same experience. And what we've found is that if we teach people, we have many, many different types of meditations that we do, and if you come to a progressive workshop or an advanced workshop, you're, you're, they're, we're always doing something. We're reconditioning the body to a new mind. We're finding the present moments. We're, we're changing beliefs and perceptions. We're tuning into potentials in the quantum field. We're blessing the energy centers of the body. We're, you know, we're, uh, we're signaling new genes. We're doing all kinds of things in all different meditations. Yeah. So, I think mixing it up is one of the key elements. I know from personal experience that if I have a transcendent or mystical moment, 
the worst thing I could try to do is try to reproduce it the next day. It just doesn't yeah. work that way because you're trying yeah. to create you're trying to create the same thing, and you have to be you you have to let go and just be open to whatever happens. And so uh, I, I think that um, I think letting go I think that's fear that does that. Like you want to do it again, and you get you get a little bit vigilant, and you try and you get in your own way. So um, we tell people, you know, to be kind to themselves and l- allow it to happen to them. For example, when we measured all of those elevated brainwave changes in all of those students, and we just had an event in February in Carefree, Arizona, an advanced event, and my goodness, we were just jaw-dropping with all of that elevated energy in so many people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I said to the neuroscientist that was leading the, re- leading the research, I said, tell me, could these people voluntarily do this to their brain? He said, no, 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 no. They cannot do this to the brain. We've, this, is, this doesn't happen in clinical settings. I said, would you say that it's happening to them? He said, oh, there's no doubt it's happening to them. So you have to have that kind of ability to be open to whatever happens. But at the same time, yeah. you have to have a, a strong and, and firm intention at the same time. So that just takes practice to get there. Yes, I hear you. I hear you. And it sounds like you've really, really put people through the rounds. I, I know. I've taken one of your workshops uh, some time ago in New York City or a, a day of it, and uh, it's exhilarating, quite frankly. Uh, the energy in the room becomes just so alive and novel and uh, open that uh, I, I very much appreciate what you're up to and uh, what you've been able to do. I, I just think that I, I, the way I look at things is I look at what can be my experience and others' experience so to shift the overall consciousness on the planet so it doesn't continue to be engaged in, in things like violence and warfare and, and greed and the activities that sort of lower the threshold of excitement, if you will, for the, for the good, for the public good. And uh, what are those kinds of experiences that will engage and incite and excite uh, people being really wonderful to each other, like you were talking about the experience of unconditional love and seeing the good in all. And uh, these are experiences that can really be um, brought forward through certain kinds of training. And um, that's why I think the work you're doing is invaluable. Well, this, this, when people have those moments, Mitchell, it's not philosophical. They're not like trying the the good in everybody. It's not like they're trying to be selfless. They're feeling that way because they've just had that moment and that experience is lingering, and they're they're caught yes. up chemically and emotionally, and and it's yeah. beyond the it's beyond the intellect. It's it's something that's that's happening to them. And they don't want to leave that place. That's a good place to be. Yes. By all means. By all means. No, I understand. It's that we can intercede in ourselves, Joe, uh, according to certain principles and knowledge that we now have on so many levels, uh, including you know, neurological and biophysical and biochemical that when we do certain things, we get certain kinds of results, and it shows up. And when we are guided by certain hormonal, biochemical, electrical, magnetic activity, it reshapes us 
and literally transforms us into being a being uh, that I guess I would say is uh, much closer to our human potential. Is that a fair way to put Absolutely. it? Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. Joe Dispenza, again, such a pleasure to have you on A Better World. Our audience loves you. Oh, sweet. Yeah. And uh, you're doing great work in the world and so appreciate it. And uh, we'll have you back on again to continue the discussion. Your website is... Sure, absolutely. Your website for our audience is... DrJoeDispenza.com and uh, the, the... Book now has its own website called youaretheplacebo.com, and the book is being released on the 29th of April next Monday. And uh, they have some free downloads if people order on Amazon, uh, a pre-order on Amazon. They'll get some free downloads uh, uh, for them to, to to partake in. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. And we also have it in on our website and our newsletter. We have an easy Amazon link for people to use as well. Whatever is easiest for you all, definitely get your hands on this because it's truly transformative. Dr. Joe Dispenza, thanks again, and I'll talk with you soon. Okay, Mitchell, keep up the great work. Thanks so much. Take care, my friend. Bye-bye. Wow, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did, and uh, stay tuned. We will be uh, shifting gears into another subtle, really interesting realm with Alan Sheets, as I said at the beginning of the show. Right now, I'm going to remind you all of uh, an event that we will be holding in New York in honor of Earth Day. It's Planet Hearts 2014 World Peace Earth Day Celebration. I will be moderating a panel on the Earth, as you would imagine. Gary Null will be the keynote speaker, and Paul Slockis will be moderating, uh, my dear friend of Good News Planet will be moderating the Peace Panel. It's uh, tomorrow night at the Subud Center for any of you anywhere within range of New York City, or come and join us. Uh, you'll enjoy it very much. Stay tuned. This is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World. Visit us at our website at www.abetterworld.tv. And friends, if you like what you're hearing here on A Better World, we're here every Wednesday at 6 p.m. and can also be listened to in archive. We're on television as well in New York City every Monday night. That too can be listened because it's webcast at the same time. Just visit our website and become part of a better world family. We focus a lot on healing and health and wellness and consciousness and the use of neuroscience for creating a better world because I really feel that this is the way we are all going. So thanks so much for joining us. Stay with us. A little uh, PSA about the Earth Day event tomorrow, and I'll be back with Alan Sheets. Come, join us for Planet Heart's 8th Annual World Peace Earth Day Celebration on Thursday, April 24th from 5 p.m. sharp to 10.30 p.m. There will be panels on world peace and Mother Earth with live performances, food, and exhibitors. That's Thursday, April 24th from 5 p.m. sharp to 10.30 p.m. at Sabud Chelsea Center, 230 West 29th Street. 
Doors open at 4 p.m. For tickets and information, go to planetheart.org or call 212-222-5432. That's 212-222-5432. See you there. Okay, welcome back to A Better World with your host, Mitchell J. Rabin. Very glad that you're joining us again today. Wow, wow, we're just uh, going to be moving right along into another interview. Um, And this will be also fascinating, a very different kind of domain, but utterly, completely related as well, which includes uh, some music, which we'll get to in a moment, but I just want to first say a word of introduction about Alan Sheets, our guest now. Alan uh, is formerly, and actually in many ways still is, a research scientist who had the such interesting distinction of working with the Nobel laureate, double Nobel laureate, Dr. Linus Pauling for many years, and uh, also a student of Aikido for decades, learning the ancient Japanese martial art, as well as being a Feldenkrais practitioner based on the brilliant work of engineer Israeli Moshe Feldenkrais. So he had a certain aha moment of discovery that has led to the formation of something called New Equations, as well as New Equations Music. And this is a domain that is really very opening and very, in some ways, very new. Although, Alan, in a workshop I was in with him just the other day, referenced um, the ancient Egyptian netters, forces of nature, that seem to have um, forebode this uh, discovery of um, nine portals in the body that once activated brings a whole other level of sensitive, subtleized consciousness, which he'll be speaking about with us in a moment. So, Alan, are you with us on the line? Here we go. Alan Sheets, are you with us? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? I can. Yes, I can. Welcome to Better World. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. It was a great pleasure to meet you. And um, I look forward to our discussion. Good. Excellent. Excellent. I I do as well. I I feel the same way. And uh, I looked over your material and then had the pleasure of meeting you and spending some time and getting, uh, beginning to get familiar with the thinking behind and the experience of uh, new equations. And uh, I think you have a lot going on there. And I'm very pleased. I want to just ask you, would you like people to have an experience first of the music? uh, Or would you like to lay out some of the basis? Why don't you lay out some of the basis first of what it is you've discovered and uncovered? And then we can give people a little bit of a taste of music. 
Yes, that, that, that sounds like a really a really good idea, because what we have discovered is something that is not known, uh, as far as we can tell, by others, and quite by accident, I made a fortuitous discovery 20 years ago that uh, people seem to initiate their movement from different parts of their body, depending on uh, how we had classified them according to the way they view the world. Yes. And and uh, this one thing led to another, and what uh, the you know what we what we know now is is that there seem to be nine different groups of human beings based on how they spiritually um, are connected to their bodies. And That's so each, interesting. Yeah. Yes. And and each group... Now, I know that... Uh, yeah. Please go on. Go ahead. Please, please. Oh, well, um, I know that part of your discovery was um, facilitated by your study of the Enneagram, which comes to us through... Uh, the work of George Ivanovich Gurdjieff, one of my great mentors, and there were nine points in the Enneagram. Is that correct? So I was just that asking about the correlation between the nine portals that you describe and the nine points of the Enneagram. Well, there there definitely is a correlation, and we and what we feel is is that that what we discovered. Um, and the Enneagram have the same origins. And the, the, the major difference between the Enneagram and what we do is that we found a body correlation. And perhaps, you know, something that we think is, is significant, um, we can uh, determine a person's type, so to speak, through their bodily response, not what their opinion is or not what our opinion is. So it has a, a purity to it that is that is really very refreshing. Mm, that's so interesting. So how would you describe the portals? I mean, are they, uh, you know, they're not orifices as a portal, but they're, they're no, no, I they, guess, they, how would you describe well, they, they they aren't orifices. They but they are places on the body where um, each each type has one place on the body which is more responsive uh, than than average or than the rest of the body. And one of the ways that uh, you can demonstrate this responsiveness is when I or some other person who's trained gently pushes on that part of the body, you feel you feel the body adjusting itself in a way that when you push on other of the portals or other parts of the body, there's no adjustment. So for what mm. so we call them portals because it seems that there is a connection between the physical and the spiritual that happens at that place, and maybe spiritual energy comes in there, or maybe that's mm-hmm. our connection to the source of creation. It's really hard to know because it's something that you can't, it's not easy to measure, but the bottom line is that you can really see the difference in how people's bodies respond. Interesting. And where are the portals? Well, the portals are located... 
Um, I will just very briefly, starting at the top, there's one at the top of the head, there's one on the forehead, there's one at the top of the throat, there's one on the upper sternum, there's one at the center of the sternum, there's one in, in the back between the shoulder blades, there's one at the solar plexus, there's one at the lower abdomen, and there's one on the sacrum, the flat bone at the base of the spine. Mm-hmm. So interesting. And these became known to you through what, how would you describe how you uncovered these locations? Well, it was it was really a matter of the research scientist in me. Um, what I did was is that when I discovered when I, when we first discovered this in 1994, um, I was immensely curious. I read a lot and found that I couldn't find any reference to the way people moved in this way any place in in the literature, and so I just started working with people and first determined what, what were their you know what their strength was and and started either you know I'm an I'm I'm a martial artist so I know how to to meet a person and to gently push on a person so that I can push mm-hmm. with energy and not push with force because as soon as you use force then the other person gets defensive and and nothing works but if you if you push very cleanly and clearly just energetically, you start to see responses. And and what happened over a period of of months, um, I pushed on, you know, everybody who would hold still long enough, you know, all my friends and all my soon-to-be former friends, (laughs) you know, uh, they, you know, and and seeing what their responses were. And, and, you know, a consistent pattern began to emerge after working with, you know, dozens and dozens of people. and as time went on, we we said, oh, hmm, that's interesting. Oh, well, there's they, they seem to be moving from somewhere in their lower body. Hmm, that's you know, okay. And so we kept refining it and refining it. And then uh, my my wife and partner in this, Siska, uh, um, said, well, does this correlate? Does this possibly correlate with the chakras? And I said, no, it couldn't. There are seven chakras, and we found there are nine points. But it turned out that she was right and I was wrong, and <laughs> and uh, which isn't the first time. Uh, it, it, Believe it, me, we've all had that experience. <laughs> yes, yes, we've all had that experience. And um, we, what we discovered was is that uh, seven of these locations uh, were the known seven chakras. And two of the locations were, you know, for lack of better terminology, two new chakras that that aren't, yeah. you know, typically thought of as the seven. And um, they seem to, you know, they seem to be in the exact same locations. Like the seventh chakra is at the, on the, you know, the top of the head, at the soft sure. spot where you were a baby, and that's that's where one of the energy portals is. So, you know, that that's it's, it's that it's that straightforward. And where are the two that do not? Uh, correlate oh, the two, with the seven the two, known. Okay, the two that are one of them is is at the top of at the top of the sternum. Um, some people call yes. it the high heart, and the other one yes. is between the shoulder blades on the spine. Oh, I see. Got it. Got it. Very interesting. Well, there are other uh, analyses of the chakra system where we have 12 chakras 
and, oh, yes, and many, you know, literally hundreds of minor chakras. So I think that there's a little latitude here. Oh, I think that's plenty of latitude. I, I, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, I I totally completely agree because there 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 are definitely yeah. different different ideas and different practices, you know, in regards to the chakras. Yes, yes, yes. So well, it's interesting. I mean, it's a very interesting. It, it's almost like a movement typology. On one hand, we have many psychological types of typologies, as in Jungian. Typology, astrological topology. Uh, we have then uh, um, structural, morphological, like the ectoderm and the endoderm, which goes back a number of years. And this seems like it's a a movement somatic typology, where we originate our movement and maybe in some way our thought. From a certain right. locus yeah. of our body. Yeah, no, I, yeah, that, that's absolutely true. And 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 to me, the the fascinating part of this is yes, we move differently, but it turns out that that there are two really important things about um, each of the types that distinguishes them. It's not just a, it's not just movement, but the two really important things that distinguish. The, mm-hmm. the first one is, is that the people, each type, actually views the world in a different way. They have a, they, mm-hmm. they have a different way of constructing their reality around the world, around uh, you know their their experiences. And yeah. it was really fascinating because when we gathered groups of people together who were had the same body response, had the same you know movement center and got them to talking there they they started you know they started relating to each other in ways that we normally don't see human beings relate to each other and it got really you know they they like how now you've made us all curious what yes well well, well, you know it's well you know it, it it's like um the probably the easiest way to describe it is is they started, you know, that whole idea of finishing each other's sentences. They yeah. they almost could they they could almost finish the sentence before the person spoke, kind yes. of thing because they were they right. they could, they could so relate. And yes. the other thing that was really interesting is is that they were so in, in group, sync, quite literally so in sync. They were yeah. so literally in sync with each other, and. There were we occasionally had observers, you know, like a spouse would come as an observer, and yes. at the, after after the event, the spouse would come up to me and said, "What were they talking about? I totally lost track. I couldn't understand what they were saying. <laughs> it, was just, it was just so it was just so interesting because they that's they one of the problems could, with our world, Alan. Right there, spouses can't yeah. talk with one another. They don't understand each other. No, I'm I'm just having fun, but you know. Yeah. But no, but but, but, see, take that. but but yeah, no, no I, I totally completely agree. I totally completely yeah. agree with you because since since we don't understand each other at this at this level, um, it's it's probably one of the biggest reasons that we have conflict in the world. Exactly. I was just thinking about President Obama and Putin, and I wonder <laughs> what portals they have, you know, most activated and. 
what I mean, this I I I was playfully saying to you the other night. Well, you know, this could be uh, the Alan Sheets, you know, dating service, you know, <laughs> because yeah. if we if we correlate portal types, there will be some matches that are highly correlated. It might, you know, and others that will be almost repellent to each other. Not to say they don't oh. stand a chance. Of course they do. But, you know, there are some that are just more compatible by definition. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I know. And, and, and just, just, just to finish up, just to, you know, play off of the Obama-Putin thing is... Yes. Uh, we, we know... We know the type of Obama and Putin, and they are different types. And Obama is the type that that sees the real good, you know. You know, has a very, you know, positive kind of attitude. You see him smiling all the time. And yes. Then you. Except for then, when he's talking then, to the Republicans. Yeah, I know that. <laughs> and, and, and 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 Putin. Is 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 a type who who sees who sees who can can see you know magnifies the problems and those yeah. two and those two really it really is very hard for those two types to communicate and yes and you know and you know but I also want to bring this back and not get too far into you know like the Obama and Putin problem because. What we have discovered, the second part of what I was going to say before, is that that each one of these seems to have, you know, really is about our spiritual nature, and yes. and so the for instance, at, you you typed to me. Well, you didn't type me, but you yeah. uncovered. The other night, I'll just share this with the audience. There's nothing to hide uh, that I am a number. Um, portal number two has certain characteristics to it, distinct from the other portals, as each one is from each other. Could you describe to our audience what that means? Yeah, I, 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 I will. I'll be more than happy. As to an example you. for people. Yes, no, no. I yeah, think go it's ahead. a great, great example. Because what you you have, what you know, for, you know, and I think it's really good. It's 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 a really good, you know, concrete one to to talk about too. Because you, the part of your body that is more responsive is your solar plexus, and mm-hmm. you actually feel the vibrations of other people in your solar plexus and because you feel those vibrations you know them in the moment better than anybody else does so you have Mm -hmm. this amazing skill part of the reason you're an interviewer here you have this amazing skill to talk to anybody anytime anywhere doesn't they don't even have to speak the same language and you mm-hmm. can find a way to communicate with them. I could put you in a plane, blindfold you, take you to the outer reaches of Nepal, drop you off, <laughs> and you would not only get home, but you'd probably have fun along the way. And, <laughs> and, 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 and you know and what? The, I think you're what? right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and you're the only type that, could, that has that ability. 
and all the rest of us, you know, work really hard to try to relate to other people. And for you, it's like a piece of cake, and you wonder why in the heck is everybody having so much trouble with this? Yes, yes, (laughs) yes. It's like... uh... It's like Will Rogers' phrase. I was thinking about it after our class the other day, uh, who said, "You know, a stranger is only a friend I haven't yet met." You know, yeah, it's that yeah, that kind of uh, energy. But then again, it should be said that other types who have a different prominent, uh, predominant uh, portal have other attributes that. I don't have most developed, such as, well, you know, there are a series. Maybe you can give a, another example well, or two to our audience. Well, let, yeah, let, let, let me give you another example. Let me, let me give you the example of my own type, since we're, you know, sure. since we're in communication. A five. In communication with each, I'm a number five. I'm the one who's at the, the, you know, the top of the head, and I have a skill that you don't have. Because yes. my ab- my ability is to feel, um, you know, feel basically what's going on in the brain in my body, and mm. from th- from that perspective, I can get a physical sense of how things relate to each other, and this ability to physically know how everything is correlated with each other gives me an opportunity to create a map of reality. And this yeah. map of rea- this map of reality allows me to make sense out of the world in such a way that I can achieve a sense of balance and a sense of peace of mind and a sense of calmness that you long for. Just like yeah. I long for your ability to talk to anybody, anywhere, yeah. anytime, any place, in any language. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? <laughs> yeah. And it's... yet, we, we I would like to also bring to bear for our audience one of the features of the practice that you do, which involves both images, photographs in particular, and music. And yes. the photographic part of it, when we did the exercise, which maybe you can describe, uh, I found that as we looked at the photographs of the different types, I had various other portals relatively open and and activated and relatively closed and not very well activated. I kind of saw myself almost, you know, uh, like on a spreadsheet, almost, you know, not quite that ordinary. But, you know, um, I could see that I was a relative combination of all of the portals. I'll put it that way. Yes, yes, it, it actually brings up a very important point because we as human beings are trying to, what I would call, spiritually evolve. And yeah. in order from our perspective, in order to spiritually evolve, we have to have basically embody our spirituality, you know, get our spirituality more going in our bodies. So it's... Yes. So, and, and so the way that that can happen is to um, open 
all of these portals that are have been dormant since birth because for whatever yeah. reason we as human beings have one portal open and the other eight are dormant and that yeah. seems to be because that's just where we are evolutionarily speaking yeah. and so what we have discovered um and again all you know all discoveries are quite by accident that there's a there is a simple neurological trick to helping people temporarily uh, open up a portal. And as soon mm-hmm. as you open up a portal, your body shifts, at least temporarily. If you can't keep it open, yes. you have to do the practice over and over again. But temporarily do that. And it, and what we discovered was is that, of course, each per, people of each portal have different facial expressions. And so yeah. if you show a person the five or six people who are from the same portal and have the same neutral facial expression, they're not trying to be happy or sad or look good or smile or anything like that, but they're just being themselves. If you show them just being themselves and somebody looks at those pictures, you could actually stimulate yourself and begin to open the portal. And the way you do that is because we each have what are called mirror neurons. And your mirror neurons are what help you be able to relate to another person and feel what they're feeling and empathize with them. And and, and, I don't want to go into a long discussion about mirror neurons because I don't think now is the time or place to do that. But the bottom line is that we have a neurological way of by just looking at pictures, letting our mirror neurons adjust our face, we start to open the portal. And if we add, and this is probably a good time to bring in the music, if we add music to it that has been specially uh, adjusted, if the pitch has been specially adjusted so it resonates with that specific part of the body and has been composed in a very harmonious way that is very much according to the way it would be done in nature uh, with a kind of tuning called Pythagorean tuning, um, that music... Great, greatly assists in the process, and um, I think you have some of our music that you might be able to play, uh, so that the people can at least get a little bit of a. Uh, That's right. Sense. That's right. That's right. We'll complete our uh, conversation in a few moments and let the music play. Although I did put it on while you were uh-huh. speaking mellifluously yeah. and uh, so this is some of the sound that you and your wife and uh, you have another uh, composer yes three of you have formulated yes right exactly well it I think that you know since the first part of the show and speaking with Joe Dispenza uh, has so much to do with uh, neuroscience, that mirror neurons, and that was one of the reasons I wanted to have you on today as well, uh, is really a, f- a natural sequencing because the mirror neurons are an aspect of our uh, physiology that allows us to deepen our experience of each other. And it's so interesting because it's as though we have the inherent capacity to become somewhat like another person 
And by embodying them, quite literally, we can experience the world from their point of view, which, of course, is our definition of empathy. And if we're going to shift the world to another space, it's because we're understanding each other and we can stand in each other's shoes. Yeah, that, that, that's very very well said. Thank you very much. I may, I may quote you on that one. Um, oh, yeah, you're most welcome. <laughs> and I'll tell you, I, a lot of the work I do as a therapist using, I use something I've called therapeutic theater, where the entire purpose is to help people stand in each other's shoes. And it's so interesting, and you'll appreciate this because of your relationship to the body, Alan, and the the you know extensive work you have done in Feldenkrais and Aikido, that when you physically stand where someone else was standing, it's as though there's a, there is an energy field that you really begin to embody that belonged to them a moment before. And you are literally taking up some of their mag- electromagnetic field. <laughs> yeah, so I totally, I, to- I totally completely agree. And if you add the, you know, if you add looking at the pictures and letting the mirror neurons open, opening, open their portal, you can stand even more deeply in their field. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. It's so interesting. Well, your work is fascinating, and I know it involves uh, the practice that you walked us through, uh, which is the uh, sitting with a series of photographs of people whose uh, countenance is reflecting the congruence of them in their element, their portal element, if you will, and... uh, between that and the music that was uh, we're listening to now, folks, uh, is specifically designed to help augment the well, connectedness no, did, did, to that portal. Please did, comment. Just to, let, just to let you know, the music isn't coming through very well. It, it, it's very. Oh, it's not. It, oh, it, that's it, what I wanted it, to it, know. It, okay. It, it keeps cutting out, so it, it, it's. Okay, then what I'll do is, if you would. Share, because we are almost out of time here, share with us your website and how people can uh, get in touch with you. And uh, we would encourage people to really look into this. Uh, Because this is kind of a whole new flowering of a spiritual and interdevelopmental um, kind of technology that I'd really like to invite you all to pay attention to. Please, Alan, if you would. Yes, okay, so there's two websites to go to, new equations, you know, like, like, you know, like math equations, N-E-W-E-Q-U-A-T-I-O-N-S dot com, and newequationsmusic.com um, will we'll get you to some of what uh, we've been doing, and we're still working on our websites, and they will continue to develop. That's wonderful. And you're based in Marin County, but you travel around. You're in New York area now. You'll be teaching for a few more nights in the overall New York area. So if any of you listening either live in the general New York area and want uh, to experience Alan's work while he's here, or you know people who you think should, then you can email them about this and uh, send them the link to the show or what have you, or the uh, the newsletter, 
and uh, yeah. they can become apprised. Your yeah, closing so words for our audience, Alan? Yes. Um, so, you know, in email, uh, probably the easiest email to remember is newequations at mac.com. And so you can email us if you if you want to come to one of our one of our events. And my closing closing words are is that uh, anybody who has an interest or uh, would like to find out more about this, you know, what we consider to be a very exciting discovery, uh, please feel free to contact us, and uh, we could possibly. Uh, uh, work together because I think it would be wonderful if everybody in the world knew about how a way to stand in another person's shoes. God knows. <laughs> Absolutely. From your mouth to God's ears, Alan. Thank you very much. You. You're welcome. I very much appreciate your being on the show today. Yes, well, thank you. You, 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 were, you were great. I So thank you. Very good. Bye-bye now. Bye. That was Alan Sheets, who newequations.com. Really wonderful, subtle, magnificent work that I felt affecting me during the process itself. It was, uh, it was tangible, subtle and tangible, and I could feel greater brain coherence. As uh, Joe was speaking about so articulately before, we need a number of different ways. I think between our two guests tonight, we have hit upon, well, maybe three of us, uh, we have hit upon uh, a way of healing ourselves, of, of discovering, uncovering aspects of ourselves that have been heretofore unknown. And uh, when brought up, into ourselves, we will be both self-evolving and participating in the overall evolution of our species and overall planet. And God knows we need a lot of help. We just had Earth Day yesterday. We will be having an Earth Day celebration here in New York City, as I mentioned earlier, at the Subud Center at 2.30 West 29th Street between 7th and 8th Avenues tomorrow at uh, starting at about 5 till about 10.30 or so. Gary Null will be the keynote speaker. I will be moderating a panel on the Earth. Uh, Paul Slakas will be moderating a panel on peace. And we have indigenous people, elders who will be on uh, the panels. We have, there will be a lot of celebration in general, but as well as taking a very sober look at what we have done to our dear Mother Earth and what we do to each other and how this needs to be transformed. And it's because of that transformation that on a better world, I invite people such as Dr. Joe Dispenza and Alan Sheets and the many, many guests we have, or when I just speak with you directly, which I do with uh, some regularity. Um, we open up the possibility for real interchange, personal change, therefore family change and collective change. It does start at home, as the ancient Chinese uh, proverb says, the greatest change starts at home, and the longest journey starts with the first step. So on that note, I want to just uh, thank you all for 
listening and being part of a better world's community. Again, we're here every Wednesday at 6 p.m. live. It's always available in archive for free on our website, www.abetterworld.tv. And if you're not yet on the newsletter, please join us. Further, we do accept donations. We do have uh, paid promotions as well. But we're looking towards sustainability. We are looking for a video editor, intern, and camera person. So anyone in the New York area that you know who would like to participate in the good work that we do here at A Better World, we welcome. So I so appreciate your feedback at MJR at abetterworld.net, MJR, my initials, at abetterworld.net. I uh, love hearing your comments and suggestions. It's always good for us to grow from. As we say, we appreciate the good, bad, and the ugly. Just keep it coming. For closing moments, I'm going to... uh, turn up the volume. I want to just make one last comment that I'll be starting a new radio show on Progressive Radio Network, where I was on actually for some six, six and a half, seven years, uh, Gary Knowles, Progressive Radio Network, specifically doing a show on uh, progressive films, documentaries that can help forward advance the conversation about the things we need to take a look at in our world. So that will be starting probably in a couple of weeks. Stay tuned here and on our website for the specifics. Thanks again. If you can join us tomorrow night, please do. And in closing, I'll be playing some of the music composed by Alan Sheets, his wife, and their fellow composer for you all to get a feeling of the kind of sound that accompanies the practice in new equations.
Cohen Sheets website, www.newequations.com. And now we will end with our customary and much-loved Mozart. Thanks again for joining us, and I look forward to seeing you all next week.